continuing to move towards Easter. And uh, Anthony, at the end of the service, is actually going to tell you a few details about our Easter program. We've got a really exciting Easter program planned for Easter week, and uh, hopefully you can come along and be part of that. We're also going to have a baptismal. And uh, so if you're interested in getting baptism, baptized, baptism, <laughs> baptized, uh, do come along and uh, talk to us after the service, uh, because we're going to be running some baptismal classes uh, later this week. Uh, in fact, uh, just to mention that we had a, a newcomer's thing on Wednesday night, and uh, we had over 26 people there, so that was great. Uh, just so if you're interested in being part uh, of this church or of getting baptized, please speak to us afterwards. Uh, also to mention that uh, this Sunday is our Gift Sunday. Uh, you'll see that from uh, the various letters and response forms that are there on your seats. We, we use this Sunday really just so that it gets you focused. Because if you're like me, unless you have a deadline, you really don't do anything. You just keep meaning to do it. So this is designed as the deadline to encourage you to, to have prayed about this and to have thought about this and hopefully to respond in some way in relation to it, but certainly to have sought God in relation to it. And if you haven't done it, you've kind of been meaning to do it, well then really do it this week and, uh, and, uh, and try and get some focus in relation to it. It's an important event, but you've heard me talk about it now over several weeks. Uh, but, but I would just ask that you continue to pray and uphold the resourcing of the ministries of the life of the church as we move forward, because it is a fairly critical time, as Jonathan's already prayed, for the life of the church in terms of our resourcing. Anyway, let's turn to the story of Joseph. And uh, this, this is one of these great biblical stories. Uh, interesting, in the book of Genesis, uh, when it's talking about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, what, what we have is a series of short little clips uh, that really don't build into a big narrative. But when we come to Joseph, suddenly it turns into this big narrative. One commentator I read is, is saying like, it's like we've had a series of 100-meter sprints and suddenly we have this marathon. And, and, and we have this amazing narrative that surrounds Joseph. Joseph was um, a, a son of Jacob and his mom was called Rachel. Some of you will remember, and again, going back to all our Sunday school stories, but, but, but Jacob was madly in love with Rachel. It's one of the great love stories of the Old Testament of Genesis. And uh, he, he really wanted to marry her, but his father-in-law thought he needed to get rid of his eldest daughter first. And uh, so he pammed, she was called Leah, off on Jacob, uh, through trickery. You can go back and read the story. Uh, after he had worked seven years to get Rachel. So uh, the father-in-law said, work for me for seven years and you can marry Rachel. And he ends up with Leah. And he goes to his father-in-law and he says, wait a minute, you know, I, I, I want Rachel. And he says, give me another seven years labor and you can have Rachel. So 14 years in the making, this relationship. And, and Rachel and Jacob, when they did get together, had a son called Joseph. They only had two sons. And uh, Joseph and Benjamin. And, uh, and the story relates to the love of Jacob uh, for, Jake, for uh, Joseph and Benjamin. And, and uh, the kind of narrative focus is a little bit around this. What happened was 
Joseph incurred the wrath of his half-brothers. Again, maybe because Jacob was favoring Joseph. And, and uh, he ended up getting beaten up by them, thrown in a pit. They were threatening to kill him. And then they, they sold him, interestingly enough, to Ishmaelites. Remember, we did Ishmael last week. And uh, uh, so we see that at the beginning of chapter 39. And, and he's taken to Egypt and he's sold. And so we find him at the beginning of chapter 39 here in the house of one of Pharaoh's attendants, uh, a man called Potiphar. And, and, and really, we have a fairly traumatized individual. But we're told that the Lord was with Joseph. And we start to see Joseph being blessed. And uh, in fact, things start to really go well for him. And, and he's put in charge of all of Potiphar's household things. It, it, there's a brilliant uh, little verse which says, with Joseph in charge, Potiphar did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. This sounds like a great employee. It's like, oh, I just got to worry about what I'm going to have for tea. That's the extent of my worries and stress at the beginning of a day. That, that sounds like a good place to be, doesn't it? And, and that's where Potiphar was under Joseph. And so things were going well for Joseph. But Joseph was about to suffer a series of dramatic traumas. And I want to talk and look at this whole area of trauma. You know, trauma is significant for a lot of us, and, uh, and it impacts us. And, and certainly in the last couple of decades, we've got increasingly aware of how trauma impacts us, how particularly things like sexual trauma impacts us. And, and there is a, a, an element in Scripture which recognizes this. Some of you will know, but it's 20 years, almost to the day, since the West invaded Iraq. And, uh, um, well, why not? You know I don't like being controversial. But, but I personally think it was one of the most ill-conceived wars in world history. Unbelievable. And uh, governments ignored their people, ignored the warnings. We now sit with almost a million people dead in relation to that war and those invasions. Uh, I, I mean, uh, through the last 20 years, it's cast a shadow over most of my life. You know, I went to services in Holyrood where the, the dead Scottish servicemen's families who had died in a meaningless war in Iraq were remembering those who had died, the children who had lost dads, the wives who had lost husbands, the fathers who had lost children. You know, in a service, I've never been in a place like that, but it was so poignant, so angry, and so poignant. 2019, I went to visit Iraq, and it was a real privilege to go with Open Doors, and we managed to travel around the, the, the Ninevian plain, and ISIS, who had come to occupy Iraq, uh, towards the end of the 2015 or thereabouts, 2014, had just evacuated from it. And I got to visit these villages in the Nineveh Plain. And, you know, hear the stories of the survivors. And some of these villages were Christians. Some of them were a group called Yazidi. And, and, and heard about the atrocities 
of, of ISIS and what had happened to these people. And, uh, and these people were just rebuilding their lives. I, I mean, uh, some of you may know this story, but the Yazidi women were considered heretics by the ISIS fi fighters and were basically sold into sexual prostitution. They trusted the ISIS fighters and their reassurance, and within a few weeks, they were being sold and sold from one family to another family to another family. Horrific. Thousands of them, largely forgotten. Another story of another war, just forgotten. Um, sometimes I look at some of those who perpetrated the Iraqi war, and I do wonder why they are not in prison. <laughs> and, uh, uh, because it astounds me when we see what we did in terms of that war. But it left so much trauma. It left people devastated. Yet we don't have to go to Iraq to find people who have been traumatized. I had a, a friend and uh, he, uh, he was telling me a few years ago he had a stalker. And uh, th this person started to sort of stalk them on social media, stalk them in the church, stalk their family. Stalk, and, and, and they just described how that experience traumatized them. And, and they said they were amazed at just that experience of somebody behaving in that way towards them, how, how it actually impacted them, how it left them feeling, and the sense it generated in them. He said it gave him so much more appreciation of, of many of the women who have been subject to sexual harassment in their work and in their places of employment. Again, we've seen in just in the last few years how the Me Too movement has really brought an awareness of this. How we've seen the, the, you know, the stories of the, the Harvey Weinsteins and, and, and the sort of thing that went on and the horror of it, and how we lived in a culture that accepted this, and it was part and parcel of the world in which we lived, the world I grew up in, by the way, and surrounded by the values, and it left people traumatized. You know, trauma impacts you. I was hearing, again, another story about false accusations. Not only do you have the trauma of sexual harassment, but false accusations and uh, some of you will have read just a few weeks ago in Selkirk, a teacher, a woman called Catherine, Church of Scotland minister's wife, and she was working, doing her job as a school teacher. She took a mobile phone off a pupil. She was accused of assault, ended up in a massive legal action against her and ends up taking her life before the trial begins. You know, false accusation. Do you know, as you go along and you don't have to go far from the walls of this church to find people who have been traumatized by these things and whose lives have been ruined. You know, we live in a world where false accusation, where sexual trauma, where things like this come and occur and they end people's lives. They give people a sense that, you know, my life is now over. Sometimes people who have built successful careers, sometimes people have been respected by their peers, 
Sometimes people who thought they were in a place that was safe and secure, suddenly taken from them. And it feels like their life is over. Joseph experiences trauma. He experiences trauma as his employers, uh, or his owners, not even employer, as his owner's wife decides to try and seduce him. You know, Potiphar has given Joseph care of everything in his household. And Potiphar's wife, because obviously, it sounds like Potiphar was a wee bit lazy. Let's just face it. If the only thing he was concerned about was what he was having for tea and he was letting Joseph run everything, you can think, this guy Potiphar isn't one of the best. And, and obviously she sees Joseph young, driven, successful, making things happen. And, and, and in the story, she's given like a very basic line, come to bed with me. It's quite interesting, actually, when she turns to Joseph and says, come to bed with me, how Joseph replies. Joseph replies like in five sentences. <laughs> she just says one thing and he kind of bumbles through it. But he basically, the answer is no. And, uh, and, uh, and she doesn't give up and she persists. We'd call it sexual harassment today. And, uh, and, and I'm sure Joseph, you know, wondered what's going on here. Eventually... She brings an accusation against him in verse 14. It's interesting, when, when Potiphar's wife speaks about her husband, she doesn't call him Potiphar, she calls him he. It's a very interesting construction, verse 14. She says, he brought a Hebrew man to humiliate us. She says that to the other servants, and what she does is she turns everybody against Joseph. He's a Hebrew and he's over you Egyptians. You know, where's your nationalistic pride? Don't you understand how Potiphar has humiliated you by making this Hebrew rule over you? In this day and age, we'd call it a form of anti-Semitism. But she uses that, and then she uses a false accusation against Joseph. And suddenly, Joseph watches his life falling apart. Nobody believes him. He loses credibility with Potter, Potiphar. All the other slaves in the household turn against him. He's a Hebrew. And he finds himself being thrown into jail. Now here's the thing. Genesis 39 begins this story by saying God is with Joseph. And you read the story and you kind of think, well, we see God's with Joseph. You know, he's been sold. He's with Potiphar. And then suddenly, the Lord is with Joseph, and it's success. He's running Potiphar's house for him. He's, the, you know, he's top dog in, in the household. Everything's going great with him. Wow, we see it. The Lord is with him. He has success. Suddenly, Joseph experiences this trauma. He, he goes through this reversal where he loses everything where he's falsely accused, where he's sexually harassed. And, and again, we don't know the impact that that had on Joseph, but certainly he then finds himself in jail. And by the way, an Egyptian prison wasn't a nice place to be. Now, you would think if the story goes, success equals the Lord is with you, that the story would then go, when it goes like that, 
you've been abandoned by God. You know, surely God has abandoned you and left you, and that's why you're experiencing all of this. You know, surely this trauma is a sign that God doesn't care about you, that he's walked out on you, that he's finished with you, that it's not just your colleagues that you've lost. It's not just faith that you've lost. It's not just your career that you've lost. God has left you and abandoned you. Now, as a Hebrew reading this, that's usually the way it would go. You're successful, God's blessing you. You're losing everything, God's cursing you. Read the book of Job, it's kind of the way it's presented. Yet this story doesn't do this. It says, as Joseph is thrown into jail, the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. The Lord is with him in the midst of the crisis. You see, Genesis 39 is trying to communicate that God had a purpose, that God was working a purpose, and that although in the crisis-ridden moment, God was still there. Once young Maltman, who is a, a Christian theologian, very significant Christian theologian of the 20th century, he, he wrote a book called The Crucified God. And, and he was asked, as he was doing a lecture tour in relation to it, he was asked, where was God in the gas chambers of Auschwitz? Where was God? And his answer to that question was, God was in the gas chambers with the Jews. God was there. And, and, and what Genesis 39 is saying is that God is present even in the midst of brokenness and crises. God's presence is not only demonstrated in the good stuff and the successful stuff, but it's also there in the crisis. And, and you see, for Joseph, the realization of that, and it must have been really difficult for Joseph, because in that prison, he must have had sense of no future, of hopelessness, that everything that he had built, everything that he had aspired to, everything that, that he longed to be was now ripped from him. It was all taken. And yet God, the Lord, was with him. And you know, the realization that the Lord is with you gives you the possibility of a new beginning. You see, it's, 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 it's not skill. It's not our ability or opportunities that bring about new beginnings. It's the fact that the Lord is with you. And the realization that the Lord is with you, the Lord is with you maybe in the pain that you've experienced, maybe in the loss that you've encountered, that the Lord is with you in the midst of whatever you are going through right now means that there is a possibility of a new thing. As we follow Joseph in jail, we, we see what does he do? Well, he doesn't give up. He just remains faithful to his calling. And, uh, and as the, the cupbearer and the baker have, have dreams, he interprets them. He does his thing. And, and he says, you know, wherever I find myself, I'm going to remain faithful. And I'm going to just keep doing, listening to God, keep going, keep trusting God, keep trusting God. Although I can't see the bigger picture here, 
that God has a purpose. You'll see next week when we get to the story of Joseph and his brothers that actually there's a whole big narrative that says, hey, Joseph says, I'm not bitter about all the things because now I can see how God was working his purposes in all of this to bring me to this position so that I could do what I'm now doing. But at the time, it must have been horrific. And so he just had to be faithful. He just had to do effectively one foot in front of the other and just stay faithful, believing that the Lord was with him. It's interesting that the story doesn't go from the prophecies that he has to the cupbearer and the baker, to him being liberated. Uh, he, 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 you probably know the story from Sunday school, but he interprets the dream of the cupbearer of the Pharaoh and the baker of the Pharaoh. And he tells the cupbearer, it's really good news, you're getting back your job. He tells the baker, it's not so good news, you're going to die in three days. And uh, I know which one I'd prefer to be. And, uh, and, uh, and he says to the cupbearer, he says, look, this is my plight. This is, you know, I'm innocent. Probably everybody in jail was saying, I'm innocent, but he was saying, I'm innocent. I didn't do it. Tell the Pharaoh, <laughs> let him know, speak, put a good word for me, get me a pardon. And I, he was desperate for that. And the cupbearer, the minute he gets out, he races to Pharaoh and says, hey, I've got a pal in prison, Joseph, get him out. No, it doesn't do that. He says he forgot about Joseph. You know, isn't that life? Here, God, I thought you were going to get me out of here. And he forgets about him. You see, sometimes we have to learn to be patient in God's timing. We have to learn to be patient in terms of what God is going to do. Verse 41, verse 14 describes it vividly when Joseph gets out. And, and it actually says, So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon when he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. I, I, I love that description. So, so it basically meant that Joseph was wearing dirty clothes. He obviously had a big Robinson Crusoe beard, you know, uh, ZZ Top, if, 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 if you don't know who Robinson Crusoe is. And, uh, the, uh, and uh, you know, he's, he's a mess. And he's in a dungeon. So here we have Joseph in a mess in a dungeon. In a dungeon. It's not a nice prison. It reads initially like a nice open prison. But in verse 14, we're told it's a dungeon. He's trapped. He's a mess. He's dirty. He's close. And now God has said, here's a new thing. Here's a new beginning. So he shaves. Gets a new suit. And... He is released from the dungeon. And then we know the story. He becomes one of Pharaoh's top officials. We'll see the second half of that story next week. But here's the thing. Throughout, Joseph knew that despite where he was, God was with him. And although he couldn't see it, although he couldn't see what God was doing or where God was leading, God was leading and God was at work. Ultimately, there came a point where God took him out of his dungeon, where he was liberated, and he discovered a new beginning. You see, the promise 
of Christianity is that Christ offers a new beginning. And sometimes that new beginning doesn't happen when we expect it to happen. Sometimes we have to rest in the dungeon a while. Sometimes we experience all the pain, all the trauma, and God doesn't take it away. We experience all the disappointment, all the loss. We experience everything. But then God speaks, and he calls us out of the the dungeon. He says, shave, put on a fresh suit, because we're going to have a new beginning. And there's a promise that no matter what the past has brought, no matter what the past has done in relation to us, that we have a God who is a God of new beginnings. We're a God who says you don't have to be defined by that past, by that trauma, that there can come a new beginning, a new possibility. And as we head towards Easter, it is that faith, that faith of a God who died and rose again, who is a God of death and resurrection, that we move towards. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we we thank you for the example of Joseph. Lord, we know that many of us have experienced some of the things that Joseph experienced. Many of us maybe have had some forms of sexual trauma that have marked our lives, that have scarred our lives, that have shaped our lives. Lord, I just pray that in the midst of the pain maybe that these things still bring to our life, that we would know that the Lord is with us. Lord, I pray for all those who have suffered the trauma of lies, of deceptions, of untruths that have been spoken in such a way that they've affected people's careers. They've affected their friendship groups. They've affected their lives in very deep and profound ways. Lord, I pray for the sense of abandonment that can come in relation to that. The sense of why God. Lord, I pray that for those suffering these things, that they would know that you are a God who is with them. Help us all to know you, Lord, as the God of new beginnings, as the God of death and resurrection, as the God who calls life out of death, as the one who brings hope in the midst of hopelessness. Lord, call us out from our dungeons. Help us to be clothed in a new way for a new beginning. I ask this in your name. Amen.